Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. Skidmore.substack.com. That is the URL for the, the blog, Sketches from Scripture. And uh, when you go to the, the homepage, you'll see some information up here at the top, and then you'll see the newest posts uh, down here. So what, what I have on the blog is I have anything that has the headphones on it like these do. That is part of the podcast. And you can click into one of those and you can listen to it right there on the page. Uh, I might have some notes. I'll have links to things um, that are discussed, maybe some images if I cover anything that requires images. And so you can listen to things there. There's a see all here that allows you to just scroll and scroll and go back and, and see everything. Now, these without the without the headphones, these are just blog posts that I have done. So the, the point of this blog is I've been doing these little writing exercises where I take a little piece of scripture and write a little story from it. Um, and so then I will I will post that in uh, a format that you can read, just like a little short story. These go out by email every Saturday-ish. And so you can get this in your inbox and read these. Sometimes they're in screenplay format like this, and sometimes they're just a little short story. Totally for free. And then you'll see some of these, like American Da Vinci here and the Caravaggio post. But these two, they have a little padlock on them. That is because that is for paying subscribers. And so uh, you can pay by the month or you can just uh, pay by the year and you save a little if you pay by the year. But if you are the arts supporting type and you want access to some of this, um, the the locked content, this, these are just things that inspire me, people that inspire me, different art things, things about art and music. Um, that's one on Victor Schreckengast, who's um, a favorite designer of mine. Caravaggio is one of my favorite painters. And so this has got a little bit about him and, and uh, some of his paintings and things in it. So you can read that. Uh, but those are locked. So those are only for paying subscribers. I've made some that normally would be for paying subscribers um, available, but you got to go way back before the, the podcast and uh, and find them. Uh, this one on Remix is one that would normally be for paying subscribers, but I've made it available for everybody. Same with this What's in a Name um, that's available. 
but then uh, I've got a lot in here that are just stories. So uh, Proverbs 13, 6, righteousness guards. I'll take the verse of the day and I'll write a short story. This one ended up being actually quite long. It's about 3,600 words, um, but I think it's pretty enjoyable. So you can click around on the sketches from scripture blog and you can find some of those things. And if nothing else, it's a way that you can share the the podcast with others. Now, most people listen to podcasts through a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or something like that. If you go to the top posts, one of the top posts is the one that says Sketches from Scripture Podcast. And so if you go to that, um, I have linked here some of the audio short stories that are on the podcast, the two long teaching lessons, the one from Genesis and the one from Numbers that are completely up. Um, and I've got the links here for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or just the link to the podcast feed if you use your own podcast app. So um, if you just go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search for Paul Skidmore or Sketches from Scripture, it ought to come up. Um, but it's uh, totally free and you can share it with people. And I would love for people to um Check it out. So please share it. Even now, as you're watching this video, if you think tonight's lesson might be something that others might want to hear, there's a little share button down at the bottom uh, by the comment section. And so you can share that with others. But this uh, this one that says Sketches from Scripture podcast is a great one to share because it gets them to the blog, but it also shows them how they can just subscribe to the podcast in their own way. So again, once you go to the homepage, just click on top. And it'll be one of the first posts here, uh, probably for a long time. It'll be somewhere near the top because it's the one that I keep sharing out all the time when I talk about the podcast. Lots of links and things in there. So we're looking tonight at 1 Samuel chapter 12, continuing the series after God's own heart. So let's do just a little bit of review and then we will get into the reading for tonight. The book of Samuel begins with Hannah's prayer, this desperate prayer by a woman who wants to have a son. And she promises the Lord, if you give him to me, I'll give him to you. She has a son. She names him Samuel. She dedicates him to the Lord. Once he's weaned, she takes him to the temple and he grows up there and he becomes Israel's first real prophet. Uh, of course, we've seen the term prophet used for other people in the past, but this is Sort of Samuel is the first one, sort of an official capacity for the nation of Israel. And so he is, uh, he grows up uh, under Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, which are not good priests, but uh, because he listens to the Lord and the Lord speaks to him, then um, he grows up knowing the Lord and being a good spiritual leader for Israel. Uh, at some point, the Israel Israel's battling the Philistines. And they lose a small skirmish and they decide they're going to take the Ark into the battle. So, so they, they rip the, the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into battle. They lose to the Philistines. 30,000 Israelites are killed and the Philistines capture the Ark. On top of that, uh, Hophni and Phinehas die. When Eli hears that his sons have died and that the Ark has been captured, he falls over, breaks his neck. He dies and uh, the Philistines make away with the Ark. For a short period of time, about seven months, the Philistines have the Ark, and everywhere they take it, it wreaks havoc, causes problems. Um, if you want to get into all the details of that, you can go back and listen to earlier lessons. I'll spare you the grossness now. And so they finally say, let's get it out of here. They send it to Beth Shemesh, where some Israelites 
uh, look at the ark, look into the ark, and God strikes them dead for treating the ark in an unholy way. So they sent it off to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, who are not Jews per se, they're Gibeonites that have been made uh, woodcutters, water bearers for the Jews and um, a, uh, a treaty that was made back in the book of Judges, or I'm sorry, in the book of Joshua. And so now the Ark of the Covenant is in uh, the guest room of a man named uh, Eliezer, and it's in Kiriath, Jerem, and it's just hanging out there. It's been there now 20 years. So at this point, Israel asks for a king, and in doing so, they reject God as their king, and they're rejecting Samuel as their judge. But God says, let them have one anyway. So God anoints Saul as king. And so far, he appears to be the model king of Israel. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, and he defeats Nahash, um, which Nahash means serpent. That's what his name means. And so he literally crushes the serpent's head with his heel, which is a reference, of course, to Genesis. And so when you have this king that has suddenly come, Israel goes from being a nation to being a kingdom for the first time. And now that first king goes out, defeats Nahash, defeats the serpent. And boy, it just sure feels like this is definitely um, uh, going to really go well. And yet we see foreshadowing about Saul's weaknesses and his lack of faith, even in some of the things that we've already seen. We're going to see more of that to come. So chapter 12 is Samuel's farewell address. Now he doesn't die. He doesn't go away. He will eventually, of course, but um, this is, he's basically retiring. And so this is his farewell address to say, okay, you got your king now. You don't really need me. Um, and so he's going to uh, just gather all the people together and speak to them now that they have a king. So I'm going to read first Samuel chapter 12 from the Christian standard Bible. I'm going to have it on the screen so you can follow along. If you've got your own Bible, you can follow along in your own version. I'll come back and uh, make some comments, and then we will um, make some other notes along the way. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 12. Go to the Bible verses here. 1 Samuel chapter 12, Christian Standard Bible. Then Samuel said to all Israel, I have carefully listened to everything you said to me and placed a king over you. Now you can see that the king is leading you. As for me, I'm old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have led you from my youth until now. Here I am. Bring charges against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox or donkey have I taken? Who have I wronged or mistreated? Who gave me a bribe to overlook something? I will return it to you. You haven't wronged us. You haven't mistreated us. And you haven't taken anything from anyone, they responded. He said to them, the Lord is a witness against you. And his anointed is a witness today that you haven't found anything. His anointed being the king, of course. Uh, his anointed is a witness today that you haven't found anything in my hand. He is a witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt is a witness. Now present yourselves so I may continue, uh, so that I may confront you before the Lord and all the righteous acts he has done for you and your ancestors. When Jacob went to Egypt, 
Your ancestors cried out to the Lord, and he sent them Moses and Aaron, who led your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he handed them over to Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, to the Philistines, and to the king of Moab. These enemies fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, for we have abandoned the Lord, and worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Now rescue us from the power of our enemies, and we will serve you. So the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. Uh, Jerubbabel, by the way, is another name for Gideon. If you go read the story of Gideon in uh, Judges chapter 6, you will see that uh, he cut down all the Baal um, statues, and all the Baal worshipers came at him, and his father Joash said, Hey, you know, he's doing what his God has told him to do. If if it's wrong, let, let Baal contend with him. And that's what Jerubbaal means is Baal contends. And so that was sort of a nickname given to Gideon. And Samuel is using it here because it is in line with what he's talking about, how Israel has constantly gone back to these Baals, gone back to these Ashtaroths, and, and God continually provides them with people like Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and now Samuel, who will keep setting them right, who will keep setting them back on the right path. Continuing now in verse 11. He rescued you from the power of the enemies around you, and you lived securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king reign over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. Now, here's the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him. And if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. In other words, he's saying, worship the Lord, obey the Lord. The Lord is the one you should fear. King and people are all subject to the Lord. In other words, don't worship the king. Don't worship this king. That was the common practice. Remember we said back in Friday's lesson when they were asked for a king, most nations, their king was their God. And in Israel, God was their king. And Samuel was trying to tell them, now that you have a human king, that doesn't mean you worship him like a God. There is still the Lord and you still follow him and you still worship him. Even the king must follow the Lord's command. Verse 15. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now, therefore, present yourselves and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Isn't the wheat harvest today? I will call on the Lord and he will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize what an immense evil you committed in the Lord's sight by requesting a king for yourselves. Samuel called on the Lord, and on that day the Lord sent thunder and rain. As a result, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So, again, uh, Samuel is got his home base sort of in Ramah. Everything's happening down closer to Jerusalem, not up in the northern part of Israel, where it is kind of green and lush a lot of the time. But we're down now in southern Israel where it's not quite the Dead Sea, but it's close. To, it's closer to the Dead Sea than it is to Galilee. Jerusalem is not far from the Dead Sea, uh, relatively speaking. And so everything's very arid down there. It doesn't rain very much at all. And when it does rain, certainly it's not thunder. It's not thunderstorm. And this is happening during the wheat harvest, which would be the dry period. 
So Samuel is saying, you're going to see a great sign. So thunder and rain doesn't sound like a big sign to us, especially on a day like today when we've been seeing it uh, all day, all weekend. But for the people at that time, at that time of the year, where they were living, this would have been a great sign. So continuing verse 18, as a result, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Verse 19, they pleaded with Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so we, don't, so we won't die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. So now they acknowledge the evil of their request. Samuel replied, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he is determined to make you his own people. As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Okay, so that is 1 Samuel chapter 12. So we're just going to make a few comments here going back through it. So in the beginning, Samuel rehashes everything from chapter 8 about how bad a king will be, which is really just kind of a rehash of what Moses said about um, you know if you get a king over yourselves like the rest of the nations have, right? So he kind of rehashes, hey, remember what I told you in chapter eight? Well, here it is, right? And he reminds the people, you asked for it. And they can say, yes, we asked for it. We own it. And Samuel makes his case like a good judge by calling witnesses. So the first witness he calls is himself. And he challenges them to say something about his character, right? And it's not just a, um, you know, he says, uh, uh, hey, have I done this? Have I taken anything from anybody? Have I ever held back anything? Have I ever taken a bribe? It, it's not just that because it ends with, you, you could almost write it off as sort of sort of arrogance or, or being confrontational, except there's that last line there where he says, I will, I will repay it. I will give it back. And so here you have somebody saying, hey, if I've done anything, bring it before me. It's not just a challenge because he, he ends with that because I'll pay it back. If there's something that's happened, I, I will make it right. So even when he is setting himself up as a witness and setting himself up and kind of making a challenge. He's doing it with, with some humility because he's saying, if I've forgotten something or if I've done something wrong, tell me, I'll make it right. But they acknowledge, they affirm him um, with God and Saul as witnesses that Samuel is just. He has been a just judge. He is a just man. They have nothing to say about his character. He's a good man. So they affirm with God and with the king Saul as witnesses, Samuel is just. So his first witness is himself, and they affirm that Samuel is just. So his second witness, he calls God to the stand, and he reminds the people of everything that God has done, and he reminds the people of everything that they have done against God, not just the people listening, but their ancestors, what the nation of Israel, what the people of Israel have always been back and forth in following the Lord and then rebelling against the Lord always going away and worshiping some kind of idol. So he reminds them of everything God has done, and he reminds them of everything that they have done against God. And then he reminds the people of everything that God did for them anyway. 
And he proves before them that the Lord is merciful and that the Lord's love is loyal and continuing. And that even though they were rebellious and enemies, God still shows them his loving kindness. So Samuel is just. The Lord is merciful. These are the witnesses that he calls. Then the powerful God shows that Samuel, uh, that what Samuel is saying is true by bringing in a storm during the dry season. And the, the storm, the sign is such a great witness that what Samuel is saying is correct, that the people confess, we have sinned by asking for a king. And with their confession, the just judge and his merciful God hand over authority to the king that they've asked for, imploring them that they must always serve the Lord, they being the nation of Israel and their king, must always serve the Lord, and that the king must always listen to the Lord, that all the people, including the king, must obey the Lord. They must walk with the Lord. And even though Samuel is retiring, is probably pretty irritated at them, it seems, uh, he promises to pray for them. He says, I want sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So you get the double negatives there. In other words, he says, I will obey the Lord by continuing to pray for you. So even though he's retiring and a little irritated, he promises to continue to pray for them and to continue to teach them what is right. So even though the people have sinned and don't deserve it, Samuel is going to keep his end of his promise because his promise is not to them. His promise is to the Lord. And really, it's not even his promise. It's Hannah's promise back from chapter one. See, this is why I think we should call this the book of Hannah. Wouldn't that be something, right? Um, so in doing so, Samuel humbly walks with God before the people, continues to do so, even though he's retiring from his official capacity. So we see that Samuel was just, that he desired and appreciated and shared, delivered the Lord's mercy, and that he led the people, taught them how to humbly walk with God before people and, um, uh, and, and modeled that before them, how to, how to walk with God. So Samuel was just, he delivered the Lord's mercy and he led the people humbly before God. He acted justly, he loved mercy, and he walked humbly with God. Now, does that sound familiar to you from anywhere? If you're familiar with scripture, you've probably heard those phrases before to act justly, love mercy, uh, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. It's from Micah chapter six. So uh, let's pop over and read Micah uh, chapter six. And I'll have it here on the screen. This is from the New International Version. The Lord's case against Israel. So here we have that judicial tie-in, right? We Lots of judicial language in uh, the Bible. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So right out of the gate, it's kind of funny because God has set up as his audience, as his jury, all of the universe that he has made. So I don't know what the people think that they're going to bring, but that's what God brings is every created thing from the foundations of the earth. Um, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? 
Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So again, you see the irony here. I'm sorry, was it such a burden that I freed you from slavery? I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Of course, you remember the story of Balaam from the Numbers, from the Wandering series, where Balaam uh, and his donkey go on a little uh, adventure and a very classic story out of Numbers. It's referred to here in Micah, one of the last prophecies in the Old Testament. You remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. The quote's in there, and now you have uh, the the prophet or the people speaking. Uh, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with, with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So God brings Israel into the courtroom of the universe and says, hey, make your case. Here's all of the perfect creation that I made. You make your case to them and see what they have to say. And the prophet humbled says, what could I possibly bring? Can I bring uh, all of these sacrifices? And he lists a number of things that are actually commanded sacrifices to bring. In fact, uh, the firstborn, certainly not a sacrifice of the firstborn, but every firstborn must be redeemed because every firstborn belongs to the Lord. That goes all the way back to the Passover in the book of Exodus. And um, so uh, what we see is that um, the people, once again, they're on trial before the Lord. They come only with what they can see. They come with these physical things, cattle, oil, their firstborn. God's law, again, requires the firstborn of everything. So is it wrong that they come with these things? It isn't. But the problem is they only come with the things, forgetting that the things are meant to stir up something inside of them. It's meant to uh, represent the sacrifice that they're making inside. It's meant to represent the trust that they're putting in the Lord. So when we look at this phrase, um, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. That word mercy is translated different ways in different translations. I think it's only the NIV that translates it mercy. In uh, ESV, I think it's faithfulness. Uh, in other places, it's translated kindness. Well, why is that? These seem vastly different. The word there is a word that you may have heard before. It's uh, a Hebrew word, chesed. And the word means faithful love, loving kindness, loyalty, constant love. And it is frequently used specifically when talking about God's love. In fact, back in the Wandering series, we looked at how God defined himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. It says, the Lord passed in front of him, this Moses, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in 
faithful love or steadfast love, chesed is the word that is used there. Love and truth, maintaining faithful love, maintaining chesed to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's Exodus 34, 6 and 7 from the Christian Standard Bible. We also see it in Genesis chapter 24, where the servant has left Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. And in verse 27, uh, the servant says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his chesed, his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. And so you see even this nameless servant in Genesis 24 acknowledging God's chesed, God's loyalty, his faithfulness, his loving kindness. So when we go back and we see the definition of that, by the way, when it says love, mercy, that word love, since chesed kind of also means love, the other word that is translated love in all of these translations, uh, it, it does mean love, but it, it means it in um in like a desiring kind of way. In the Song of Solomon, it actually means lovesick. I'm lovesick for him. I love him. I desire him. I yearn for him. And so that's what that word means to to desire, to 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 really want something. Not just to care for it or appreciate it or be nice to it, but but just really to really crave it. So act justly to desire loyal love and to walk humbly with God. These are the things that God wants. This is what Samuel is imploring the people to, to appreciate. This is the character of God that we see in Genesis and in Exodus. All throughout the story of God's people, we see them focusing on the external and missing the internal. This is a very important point that is about to reveal itself in the story of Samuel in a few chapters that man constantly focuses on the external, but the Lord focuses on the internal. Those of you that know the story of Samuel know where that is going, where we're going to see that. But you see it, the seeds being planted for that idea, even right here in Samuel. And it very much mimics the prophecy in Micah chapter six. God points them from the outside acts, what they can see, to the inside principles, what they cannot see. Because more important than uh, all these things is the principle of sanctity of life, merciful, loving kindness, of love, being just and loyal love, not just to the Lord, but to others. Remember the two greatest commands from the New Testament are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are not new commands in the New Testament. They are from the Torah. They are commands of old. They are commands, since there have been commands, there have been these two commands and the first and greatest is the oldest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we see that love taking place in the Garden of Eden. We see that love being pronounced to Moses in Exodus 34. We see God's faithful love as he wanders with them in the desert. Their punishment is to wander for 40 years, and he doesn't send them into the desert and wait on them. But instead, he's right there with them, leading them. We see his chesed, his faithful love. And we see the same ideas come forward into the New Testament, particularly this idea where God points from the outside acts, what they can see to the inside principles that they cannot see. The external and the internal 
are never separated in Jewish thinking and Jewish thought. It's a very Western thing to separate acts from intentions. Now, with God, they always go together. The outside act doesn't really count unless the inside intent is there. And the inside intent is always going to be uh, presented, proven with some kind of outside act. We see this in the, the, the gift of baptism. Acts chapter two, what must be done, right? You must be baptized. Why? Is there something in the waters? There's something in the baptism? No, but when you obey that command, you are putting a stamp. You're going through the wedding ceremony saying, this is showing that I want my sins to be forgiven and I want the Holy Spirit so that I can follow Christ for the rest of my life. It's a very important uh, moment and they go together. They're not separated. So God always points us from the outside acts, what we can see to the inside principles, what we cannot see. And so let's go back to scripture and take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. We'll see the same principle at play here at the end of this chapter. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So he's talking about light and momentary affliction. He's talking about, uh, at the time that he's writing, he's talking about Christians are being persecuted. He's talking about uh, the things that are happening to uh, the apostles, uh, going to prison, being beaten, all of these things. And yet he says, all of this is for the glory of God. And we share in that glory. And so he says, these things that are happening to us, you know what? They're just light and momentary afflictions. I mean, if you were beaten almost to death, if you were stoned almost to death, if you were shipwrecked, if you were put in prison, would you say these things were huh, light, momentary light afflictions? But he's saying these momentary light afflictions, they're doing something. They're producing something in us. They are producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal, weight of glory. In other words, these light burdens, these light burdens are piling up into a heavy weight of glory. And that word glory being associated with the, with the idea of light, it really means renown in the world, kind of like having your name up in lights, right? Kind of a fame or something like that. This glory, this uh, this weight of glory, the, 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 um, the heaviness, the importance, the inertia and momentum of being known as God's people and uh, of God being known in the world and what we get to share in with God when his light is revealed to everyone. That's why in this time, we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So what a timely message for right now when there is so much to be seen in the world that uh, is negative, that is scary, that is uncertain, uh, that is evil. We see uh, culture going in all different directions, many ways that we don't understand. Uh, things that were taboo even just a few years ago uh, are now, uh, we see them on prime time. We almost uh, have forgotten to be offended by them because we see them so often. We see the division between people just politically, socially, uh, no one can 
uh, talk about anything anymore. Everything is an argument, a fight. Everything is destroying each other. Everything is uh, putting each other down. Everything is name calling. Everything is belittling others. Uh, we even things that don't have to do with other people, just like this virus, this thing that is uh, this one thing that is unseen. You can see it on a microscope. You can see it in certain ways. You can certainly see the effects of it in your body. We can see the numbers going up and we focus on all these things that we can see and these afflictions, they pile up and we have a response. We can either let them pile up and crush us like being stoned to death, or they can pile up into this weight of glory. How do we do that? What does this mean? C.S. Lewis actually wrote a sermon called Weight of Glory. Uh, I'd heard many people talk about it, and I had I procrastinated reading it for a long time because I thought it was a book. And I thought, oh, I don't know that I can sit down and read through a book, especially from an extremely brilliant you know, British uh, academian. I'm not sure I can make it through it. But um, turns out it's just a sermon. It takes about 40 minutes to read, 45 minutes. Um, I won't read the whole thing tonight. Don't worry. I am going to read a part of it, though, because it's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever read outside of Scripture. And it tells us how this can happen, how these light afflictions, how they can pile up, but lead us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, to this eternal weight of glory, building up this glory, this light. Um, and it really has to do with discipleship, something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. It has to do with loving others as yourself. It has to do with taking this loving kindness, this chesed that God shows us and being loyal, faithful, loving to other people, to parenting them, to doing what Samuel does and says, no matter what you do, I will not cease to pray for you. I will not cease to guide you in the ways that are right and to share with you the word of the Lord. That's our responsibility as disciple makers. Our responsibility is not to save them. Our responsibility is not to make them obey. Our responsibility is merely to keep loving them so much like they are our own children that we will never leave them. We will never abandon them. We will constantly pray for them and we will keep trying to show them the path of the Lord so that they too can act justly, desire loyal love and walk humbly with God and Few people sum it up better than C.S. Lewis does near the end of his sermon, Weight of Glory. And I'll leave us with this this evening. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations which I have been indulging. He's been talking about the definition of the word glory and what it might mean and what that has to do with Christians. Well, I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken.
It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.